Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have some truly great folks that join us every week, so Ravinder, tell us all about your chat room, please. Yes, we have a lovely chat room with a great group of people. Um, I always learn bunches from them in there, and we have some really... Um, really fascinating discussion sometimes, so do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to address the notion I think of as just another form of voodoo, and that's the idea of blank out. What do I mean by blank out? No one tells this story better than Ayn Rand. Quoting Atlas Shrugged, They believe that reality can be altered by the power of the words they do not utter. And their magic tool is the blank out, the pretense that nothing can come into existence past the voodoo of their refusal to identify it. Close quote. We live at a time when events like that which occurred in San Bernardino are unfortunately becoming more and more commonplace. Paris was recently the site of mass killings, and according to Wiki, there have been 17 terrorist attacks so far in the month of December this year. These attacks are manifestations of evil, and anyone who says differently is practicing some sort of verbal voodoo. There is evil in the world. Denial will not alter that fact, and that old pat answer regarding cultural relativity is also quickly breaking down. There are those so-called prominent gurus who have argued on this radio show that there is no such thing as evil. In their view, two factors explain what we call evil. The first is the notion that somewhere, unnamed, a heaven if you will, souls decide on who will be the good guy and who will play the bad guy and then they come to earth and act this drama out over and over again. Now, they have no evidence for this childish nonsense, but we're supposed to accept it on faith, faith in them, for we'll not find this hogwash recorded in any of the ancient sacred literature. But that doesn't matter. They'll just write a book that says so and then refer you to it as the authority. And here we go, round and round the merry-go-round, one circularity followed by another. Their evidence is no more than the definition they give it, a pure and simple tautology. Sadly, there are many who do accept this sort of worldview because it feels good and it fits their own narrative because implicit in this doctrine is the notion that there is no error, no sin, and therefore nothing to forgive. Now their second explanation for the absence of real evil is that of cultural relativity. This argument, in my view, is for the siloist in universities. The argument insists that if it's right within a culture, then it's right. We have no claim to any moral authority, for morality is culturally defined. 
the very real problem with this rubbish is that cultures no longer exist as separate planets separated by great distances of time and space. No, this notion makes no sense at all. Each individual, think of it this way. If it makes sense, then every individual is entitled to his or her own moral code, regardless of what others may think of it. It's their cultural prerogative. You see, the fact is, nations live together as neighbors. In today's world, just as neighbors, you and I live next to each other, and therefore, the idea that suicide begets virgins in heaven if carried out against infidels, and infidel is defined as anyone other than the in-group, is simply a non-starter to an intelligent person, not a value sanctioned by some silly idea of cultural relativity. Refusing to call evil by its name only instills courage in the perpetrator and fear in the victim. Refusing to acknowledge the many forms of suffering in our world with the idea that if I think no evil, speak no evil, and refuse to acknowledge evil, this will somehow either protect me from evil and or extinguish it from reality is akin to burying your head in the pillow to hide from the light when the drapes are pulled open. You may pretend anything you want, but if you think you're an adult, then at least acknowledge that you are pretending. Again, believing that reality can be altered by the power of the words they do not utter is absurd beyond absurdity. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I find the whole subject fascinating. Um, You know, the fact is lots of ideas do become accepted simply because they're convenient, they make you feel good, um, then you don't have to think much deeper. The fact is, I think we are born with uh, just that sense of right and wrong. You know, we're aware that when something is wrong and uh, we should speak up about it. There was that research study that you came across where there were toddlers involved and when one toddler was favored over the other, you know, the favored one could tell that, no, that was wrong. He should not have all the treats. It should be shared out between them. So there are lots of those kinds of examples. And I think that is our spiritual quest is to find out, you know, what is truly good within us. I think that is part of our journey. I don't know that I can agree with you. I mean, I, I do believe there is an inherent sense of of um, fairness. But, you know, we are so enculturated that it we can buried. have these really strong feelings of what's right or wrong, and they have nothing to do with uh, any kind of what shall we say, true moral compass, they really are more a result of your social programming. I think I was talking about the two sides of it. I think we have that inner belief, but I think it gets buried under what society teaches us. So all of the work you do is all about, you know, thinking once again, trying to find that truth within you as opposed to accepting those things that are accepted out there by the masses. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, the storms and power outages had us off the air. 
So the guest on our last live show was Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and we discussed psychic powers. Tammy wrote, great show. About four years ago, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I grew up Christian but started Pentecostal Church. And when I was finally baptized and anointed, they prayed over me. Funny thing is, I started having massive experiences as I fell asleep at night. I was so confused because never had I had this. I don't drink or do drugs. My experiences were very intense. My third eye was activated, and visions were appearing of alien faces, and they scared me. Also, waking in the morning with my eyes closed and seeing my surroundings as if my eyes were open. Another strange thing is at night or napping, I leave my body and fly through my neighborhood. It's very detailed. This is some of the many experiences I had. Wow. I, you know, what do you think of that, Rev? Uh, thanks for sharing, nice Tammy. That's yeah. uh, okay. CB wrote, a number of years ago, I was introduced to the concept that psychic abilities are a natural consequence of calming the mind and gaining the ability to focus center. Trying to get psychic abilities specifically can actually hinder what one is striving for. If psychic abilities are the goal, others would say to use the focus to further build focus and ignore the psychic abilities. Mark commented in last week's radio show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley said that our gut feelings, intuitions, and emotions are part of our natural psychic abilities to acquire knowledge from other realms. I would like to point out that many of our gut feelings, intuitions, and emotions are also connected to our existing beliefs and values, many of which dwell at the subconscious level. It is important for someone, especially the novice, who attempts to use their psychic ability to make such a distinction. Otherwise, that person may not know whether the so-called acquired knowledge truly comes from other realms or from the subconscious. If we think it comes from the psychic and presume it to be true, but in fact it comes from our own subconscious minds, we'll have no way of knowing whether such beliefs are real. Moving on, Terrence wrote, I love your InterTalk programs. They have helped my entire family. Thank you for your dedication to helping all of us. Veronica wrote, Gotcha is a psychological survival guide for Western civilization. Now, that's a fancy term or way to describe it. What do you think, Rev? Yeah. A guide for the world, she continues, we currently live in. Optimistic suggestions for how to see and to give voluntary consent to your own thoughts and choices. For those that seek the truth of what really is going on in our world, this is the book. Well-researched, scholarly, yet readable, Dr. Taylor is a gentle, articulate guide through the nebulous territory of how we are being molded without our consent. This book will probably disturb some readers that are unfamiliar with the ways of mainstream, big corporations, and government. Read it with an open mind, and the blinders you have walked through life will finally be removed. And Lori wrote, Dear Dr. Taylor, I have to tell you a funny story. I purchased your gotcha book for my husband as a holiday gift. I bought it new. Well, it was new. Oh, not so much anymore. Immediately upon opening the box to check to ensure it was the correct item, I took a quick look at it. Then I read the first page. Then the second. And the third. Well, you get the picture. I simply could not put it down. I'm only halfway through, and I've had to put a dummy jacket on it so as not to get caught. This is the first time in decades of being with my husband that I've ever done something sneaky. I will absolutely come clean when he receives it, and I'll tell my husband that it is now technically a used book. But when he sees it, he will understand why I had to read it. Wow, there are not enough words to reflect how much I love this latest book. 
you nailed so many things. We have all of your books, but this one really blew the lid off of everything. So many times when we socialize, we cannot help but feel that we walk amongst sleeping people. I don't mean for that to sound arrogant in any way. It's just that so many people seem so hypnotized by technology and yet have no interest in what really goes on. To make matters worse, they become annoyed if we bring anything up. The, well, what can you do, refrain, is heard often. I have recommended your book to everyone I know. Thanks for Thank you for helping to wake people up. Well, thank you, Lori, and what a great ki- a Christmas gift gotcha would make, huh? I think so. I think that's a great story, but I totally understand what she's saying. You know, for all, you, you cover all of these different stories. It beca- It's a very intensely personal book because all of these stories have affected us at some point or another. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, The Energy Curve. Cure. I'll get that said. The Energy Cure. Unraveling the Mystery of Hands-On Healing with Professor William Bengston. So let me tell you a little about our guest today. William F. Bengston, Bill as he prefers, is a professor of sociology at St. Joseph's College in New York. He received his Ph.D. from Fordham University in 1980. His day job, in quotes... Uh, covers areas of specialization, including research methods and statistics. In addition, he is president of the Society for Scientific Exploration, an international group of about 800 scientists who conduct rigorous investigations into scientific anomalies. Dr. Bankston has publications in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, and explore. In addition, he has lectured widely throughout the United States and Europe. He also was on the editorial board of the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. He His book is a great read. You're all going to want to read it. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor William Bankston. Hello, is this Dr. Hello. Bankston? Hi, it's Bill. Uh, yes, as soon as I said something, uh, the line went dead. I don't know what's going on. I don't either, but I'm glad you're back with us. Thanks for having uh, listen, me on. Uh, we like to get three things from our guests to get started. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, Professor, if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself, You know where you grew up, what you wanted to be when you grew up, how you found yourself in the career that you're in. Well, I, I, I live in a kind of a strange world because, uh, as per your introduction, I have a more traditional day job where I do statistical modeling and design experiments and studies and things along those lines. And uh, in, in my wayward job, uh, my unorthodox job, uh, I, I've come to investigate anomalous healing. And uh, this, uh, to answer another one of your questions, I still have no idea what I want to do when I grow up, and I don't want to rush <laughs> into that decision. So I'm, I'm thinking I'll give it another 20, 30 years, and I'll rethink it. But in any event, um, what I do is, um, in the day job, is I'm a traditional professor, um, and uh, on my side jobs, I'm the president of the Society for Scientific Exploration. And as you said in the introduction, uh, this is a, an international group of scientists from around the world who investigate things that most people are not comfortable investigating. 
All right. Well, tell us about yourself as a youth. I mean, were you popular in school? Were you an athlete? What was it like I, growing up I, in your home? I was. Uh, uh, I, I lived in a traditional home uh, in Queens, New York, uh, so within the boundaries of New York City. Uh-huh. Um, and I grew up. I, I'm a reasonably good athlete. I can brag that many, many years later, I still hold a New York City swimming record. Um, wow. But that's only because uh, I, I broke the record in the last year they had the event. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so, so Mark Spitz has come and gone, and uh, I'm still there. Um, but uh, the, the, So I was a pretty good athlete, uh, a reasonably good drummer. Um, I... <sighs> I competed academic. I, I competed athletically uh, into college. I had a swimming scholarship, um, and I had to give that up because I had a bad back. And that—that's mm. actually one of the segues into how I got into my crazy world. Is that, is that uh, I was in pain for years and years, and nobody could could fix the thing. And then some some crazy lunatic came along and fixed me. Okay, I want to get into that in great detail. Before we do, let me ask you this. I mean. Energy healing is steeped in spiritual practices. So, I mean, you're an academic, and and I'm going to assume for the moment that you must have been raised religious, or uh, tell us about that. I mean, what is your view about energy healing and its uh, uh, conflation with spirituality? Well, I, it to it's my ra- my mother was Catholic. Uh, my uh-huh. father didn't really practice much, and she she tried to convince me to uh, be a Catholic. Uh, that didn't take. Um, uh, the the last time I was asked to to uh, be an active member of a Catholic service, uh, I was probably about fourteen, and I was in in a service that, with my mother, and and a priest came out and said, "We all deserve to burn in hell," and I started to laugh. Uh, and I, I couldn't actually stop laughing. I found it hilarious, and I just got up and I said, "This is crazy," and I walked out. And that was that was my last attempt at organized religion. And after creating a mini scene, I wasn't asked to go back. But it, it was um, the the conflation of spirituality and healing is. It, I, I recognize it as widespread, uh, but I don't really do that. Uh, I don't. I don't deal uh, with high-level spiritual matters and such. Uh, I'm just kind of like the nerd in the lab who uh, designs studies to try to unravel a thing. Uh, among the interesting findings that I have is that I don't think that a sense of spiritual connection is the cause of healing. I think it's actually the consequence of it. And so when people start to get in, try to get into a particular state of mind in order to bring about healing, I think they've reversed the causal sequence. I think that actually healing, is, the, the sense of connection is not necessary. Uh, and in my experiments, uh, there are folks who can heal and they feel no connection, and there are folks who can heal and they feel connection. And it turns out that the sense of connection or spiritual uplifting, something or other, uh, seems to be optional, uh, and and so uh, I, I again I think we've reversed the causal order. I think we think a state of mind produces healing. I think healing instead uh, turns out to be closer to an autonomic response to need, and then your conscious awareness may or may not follow. 
Do you think it's possible that because, uh, you know, we have just assisted someone, we have helped someone, or we have that feeling that we have really helped them, that the reward centers in the brain begin to, you know, uh, pump on those good feeling uh, endorphins, and that's where we get this sense of, uh, of spirituality, this sense of connection? Or do you think that it's genuinely some connection to, um, what, a higher something or other? Well, I don't know if it's higher. It's at least lateral. Um, okay. The, the, uh, I can demonstrate and, and have studies to the effect of, uh, I can show how people go into sync at a distance uh, because we have a brain bias. Uh, I've, I've looked at brains because we've got cool little tools to study brains. Uh, so I've hooked people up to uh, synchronized EEGs at a distance, and they, I've, I've got the brains to go into phase locking. Uh, I've done this with functional MRIs, and so there, there, I think there is at least a physiological correlate to, um, to what happens when healing happens. And so whether you consciously experience it or not, I don't think is the uh, most important factor. So you can have uh, people separated by a distance and thinking of each other or one person has a need and you can actually watch their bodies or their, at least their brains go into sync. Their hearts go into sync, their brains go into sync. Uh, they may not be aware of that. Um, and, and again, this goes to whether or not a particular state of mind is necessary for, for healing. I suspect that, that when you're talking about spiritual awareness, you're focusing on conscious awareness, and again, I don't think that healing is particularly a conscious phenomenon. Gotcha. Now, you know, the CEG experiments uh, that you're describing, these experiments, uh, you do that with people that know one another, or do you do that with strangers as well? I've only done it with strangers. Uh, on the drawing boards, uh, I, I, I want to find out whether uh, EEGs are more likely to sink depending on whether people know each other or not, and whether they're more likely to sink depending on whether a person has a physical need or not. So, and my suspicion is, and I am completely speculating on this, is that, um, that knowing someone beforehand is, will likely increase a resonant bond, and I also suspect that a person having a physical need for which they wish there, uh, something would change would also increase the resonant bonding. Interesting. That's, that's still speculative, uh, but but it, I, I mean, I, I, it's strongly speculative. <laughs> All right, we've got a break coming up here. When we come back, I want to pick it up there. I've got a couple of questions about that. We're speaking with Professor William Bill, as he prefers to be called, Bengston, about his life, work, research, and book, The Energy Cure, Unraveling the Mystery of Hands-On Healing. It's a great read. It's a great book. To learn more about Bill, visit his website at Bengston. That's B-E-N-G-S-T-O-N. Bengston Research has one word, dot com. BengstonResearch.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder in the chat room. You can do that by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. 
He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor William Bengston about his work, research, and book, The Energy Cure, Unraveling the Mystery of Hands-On Healing. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. As such, there can be quite a bit of self-disclosure in the music one chooses. All right, we just played some of Desolation Row by Bob Dylan. So... Please tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. I recognize Desolation Row. I was wondering who the artist was who sang it. It sounded like meatloaf to me. <laughs> Supposed to be Bob Dylan. That definitely was not Bob Dylan. Uh, uh, it, uh, I find, uh, so I, I'm not sure who that was, but uh, I find Dylan to be, uh, extraordinary and extraordinary over the course of decades, and 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 people who know um, uh, the old stuff, blowing in the wind, uh, 
don't think twice, things like that. But his his recent stuff is just it's just extraordinary. This is a guy who has, if you're talking about spirituality, this guy has tapped into something, and uh, to say he's talented, I think, is a gross understatement. So, I'm 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 reasonably happy with uh, just about anything Dylan plays, though. I don't recognize the artist. Uh, yeah, the I've always... thing I, um, I use uh, when I teach people how to heal, and they, I use them in my experiments, and they're sitting in labs, and they're doing various tasks. I recommend to them, as you said, that, that they not sit quiet, but they rather play music. Uh, and, and so if I'm sitting here, uh, and, I'm, and I'm treating or doing an experiment, and it's appropriate to play music, it helps. It helps. It, you you get swept up in music, and for whatever reason, Dylan just does it for me. So this is the kind of music you play when you're doing your healing. Uh, I would play. I would play Dylan. I would play a variety of things. Yeah, I I, I joke. I play anything but country and western. Uh, the uh, I don't know who you who the artist was again. It sounded like Meatloaf. But well, I'm um, looking at uh, it right here, and it says Bob Dylan. But yeah, okay. Let's assume it's not. The lyrics are still the same. Oh, the lyrics you, are still the same, you, yeah. So uh, Dylan just, it, the way that poetry grabs, uh, Dylan is a poet. Uh, it's poetry put to music, and, and some of it is profound, deep, and wonderful, and it trans it, it is transformative. Um, and uh, uh, to play this kind of music, uh, and I, again, I'm thinking just Dylan's stuff is, is a beautiful way to, I think, enhance healing. All right, the last so, thing you want to do when you're healing is think about healing. You want to be be someplace else. You want to no let it no go. hidden meaning in those lyrics. That's what you're saying, right? Well, you get meaning in the lyrics, in the in the tune, in the just music is transformative. Yeah, yeah some of Dylan's right. stuff is past my pay grade. Um, it's just <laughs> I only have a limited ability to process poetry, and some of his stuff is too deep for me. A professor but of sociology, I, 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 I somehow think you're just being modest, but that's all oh, right. No, that's... no, not at all, not at all. Uh, he's, he's, in this particular area, he's way past my pay grade. <laughs> all right, your training was that appropriate to prepare you to be a university professor of sociology, and yet you find yourself, as you indicated, you know, um, your part-time work or your off-the-scales work, I don't know what we want to call this, the, the work that you're doing when you're not in the university, or you're, at least you're not in front of your students in the university, was triggered by Bennett Mayrick, I believe. So how about sharing with us this story of Bennett Mayrick, your relationship to him, uh, his psychic abilities, and so forth? Yeah, he's one of the people who had a profound influence on my life, um and it 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 uh it it really began when many 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 years ago 40 something years ago when i was uh lifeguarding and uh i had had a passing interest and in such in psychic things i had had read some of the early work of jb Ryan and 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 some of the parapsychological literature i was somewhat familiar with some of the popular literature and I approached this stuff from the viewpoint of a skeptic. It was interesting, but I, uh, I was and maintain uh, a skeptical attitude towards most things. 
and and but I had never I had never met a psychic uh, before. And while lifeguarding at a pool, um, this this guy I, I found out there was a guy around who claims he's a psychic, and he had just discovered his psychic ability some months earlier. And I said, well, that'd be fun to meet a psychic. And so I went to the psychic and. He, he made certain claims that he was able to do certain things like psychometry uh, with token object reading. And, of course, I was skeptical. Uh, I gave him a couple of my personal items, and he did some readings on them. Uh, but they were projections into the slightly into the future. And um, they, he told me of, of conversation. He described some people. He, he told me of their conversations that they had had between them. I was skeptical. I didn't think that was possible. He told me there was something the matter with my car. I didn't think there was anything the matter with my car. Things like that. And and so I left the the initial meeting with him reasonably unimpressed. Um, but on the way home from work that day, the bottom fell out of my car. That caught my attention. And I talked to the people he had described and told them of the conversation I was told they had had. And in fact, they wanted to know how I knew that. And so I this kind of piqued my interest, and I started to give him object after object after object to do reading on, and I thought that the problem was that the conditions weren't sufficiently controlled, that if I controlled the conditions and knew a little bit more about the objects and blinded the objects, that I could get his effect to go away. And the, the bottom line is I failed at that. He, he really was legitimate. He, he, he could do readings and, and to an astonishing degree of accuracy, and I wasn't sure what to do with that. Um, his readings turned into physical readings where he would get impressions or actually feelings on his own body of problems that whoever the person's object was. And uh, that transformed into when he was doing physical readings it was alleged that the physical problems were leaving the person. And that was like too much to take. And one day, uh, we, we were sitting in a kitchen, and I was in pain. Uh, and I, short version is, I just said, uh, come put your hands on my back. And he said, and do what? And I said, fix me. And he mm -hmm. said, how? And I said, basically, shut up and do it. I leaned over a table. He put his hands on my back and... Uh, Bottom line is it's the last pain I ever had. Uh, wow. It felt like heat was coming out of his hands. It felt like I was Novocaine. And it felt like the uh, the back pain or the Novocaine was wearing off from the outside in. The whole thing took 15 or so minutes. And I've been pain-free. Um, and I thought to myself, as a good skeptic, you know, what in heaven's name is going on here? And so... I encouraged him after that to start putting his hands on other people with other conditions, and I watched hundreds and hundreds of healings, uh, and it, it became it became pretty interesting to me. And and so after watching a, a few hundred healings, we saw that uh, some interesting patterns to the healing. Um, some things would respond quickly. Some things would respond not so quickly. Uh, in particular, uh, things which were long-standing tended to take longer to fix. Age seemed to be a factor. The younger the person, the faster uh, the healings occurred. Uh, malignant tumors responded very quickly. Benign growths didn't seem to respond at all. Things along those lines. E e e 
your research, uh, Professor, is it, much of it is truly revolutionary, and I want—I really want to, you know, spend some time on that. But what you just described is the kind of event that, for all intent and purposes, would have uh, most of your colleagues, I would suspect, looking at you with some suspicion. Oh, I would uh, look at myself with some suspicion if I heard this. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no way I would buy into what I've seen. So, uh, how much. did your again, colleagues? How do your colleagues respond to you in the university now? Now? Yeah. Well, it, it's it, it, it's an interesting thing. Um, it, it, for a long-winded answer, the it depends on who the colleague is, and it depends on the year. So, <laughs> the year. For, so for the most part, uh, at, at my day job, for example, uh, for many years, I was very strongly supported in this. And that had to do with some administrators who thought that, uh, gee, this is really interesting stuff. And they saw that I, uh, what my research is, uh, is pretty rigorous, and it uses top-of-the-line stuff with top-of-the-line people and top-of-the-line labs, and right. uh, they, they, they were encouraging. But then it, it depends. So you get a new dean or you get a new vice president, and some people shut down to this stuff. Uh, some people uh, are, are wide-eyed and interested, and some people are closed-minded. Unfortunately, right now, uh, at my day job, uh, I'm shut down. That's, uh, so uh, it, it's very, very antagonistic, uh, and this antagonism to uh, to this kind of uh, I, I call it innovative research is is pretty widespread, and that that's actually the reason for the formation of the Society for Scientific Exploration, because my experience, uh, sometimes supported, sometimes not, is pretty widespread. That that uh, th- this group of eight hundred or so international group uh, of, of people interested in scientific anomalies I mean some people have taken it much worse than me uh, they, they, they've you've had very eminent people basically blackballed by their universities because they get into stuff that's unorthodox and as you I'm sure know the, the uh, science can be as rigid as any type of religious rigidity um, and there is there's an enormous pressure in some institutions that you not do anything that'll uh, rock any boats, uh, and this stuff clearly rocks boats. That's right. It challenges the paradigms. We have discussed exactly this with several prominent uh, scientists who have run into the same difficulties you're talking about. But you're in a in a unique area. You're you're this holistic healer, and and. You know, given the mood uh, change that you just described at the university, I have to ask you about this. I mean, what are your thoughts on the reported, sudden, suspicious, recent deaths of so many of the Christian and holistic doctors? I mean, we've lost more than a dozen recently, including men and women like Dr. Mitchell Gaynor, Dr. Teresa Sievers, Dr. Uh, Nicholas Gonzalez, I mean, Patrick Fitzgerald, and on and on and on. Does this alarm you? Do you have any opinion about it? Uh, do you think it's just another, what, conspiracy theory? I mean, this is uh, quite a coincidence if it's only a coincidence. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Um, I, uh, people have, have said to me that uh, I should become more attuned to what you're alluding to, 
And the, the reality is I'm not. Uh, so right, right now, for example, uh, I'm, uh, I, I have several labs going uh, now, uh, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is capture and, using this loosely, bottle the healing. Uh, and the, if I can reproduce the healing effect without the healer and turn it into a different kind of therapy, um, then, then I'm told that this, this isn't a good position to be in. Uh, essentially what I'm trying to do is reverse engineer a, a cancer cure. Um, and right. if, if the cancer cure works, you know, people have said, you, you know, that they wouldn't want to be me. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. If, if something happens to me, something happens to me. I'm just, I, I can't live in that world. I, I just don't know, you know, but, but no, I'm not fearful of it, and, and I don't know enough. Okay, there's a published piece out there I have to ask you about here um, that essentially says you're working on a, um, a vaccine. I mean, is it a vaccine that you're talking about when you're talking about reverse engineering this? or I, I don't know. Um, I... I don't know the form that it'll take if it works. And the general idea is this, as, as I uh, suggested before, we found in the healing uh, uh, phenomenon, at least with using the te- the, my techniques, um, that certain things respond quickly and dramatically and other things not so much. Um, and, and so malignancies respond quickly and dramatically, uh, benign growths not so much. And, and so... That's a clue of something about healing that I, you know, at this point is still past my pay grade, but it, it's, uh, it's what I'm, I'm trying to, to figure out. But in, in addition to the basic science questions about what's going on and what, what's the mechanism and things of that sort, um, I'm also interested in whether or not we can use it. And, and so it, I took the, the healing stuff from people and I brought it into the lab uh, to use models uh, that are conventional models used in conventional biology. And I use uh, mice experiments primarily, uh, but also some cell cultures and things. But in, in mice, for example, some of the models I use have 100% death in thousands of experiments. You know, I mean, this, you, if you inject a mouse with a certain kind of cancer in a certain dosage, it's going to die in a, in a known length of time, and this is what's done in ordinary conventional research. Well, I, I moved from people into the lab, went from clinical to more bench kind of science, uh, to try to figure out what's going on and to see if there, if, if, how real this phenomenon was. And, and in fact, uh, mice were cured, uh, they're, they're cured of cancer. And when I say cured, I don't mean remitted. They're cured. They're cured. They're immune for the rest of their life. And even if we re-inject them with cancer, their biology, if you will, appears to have taken on a memory of what it takes to fight cancer. Um, and so my question on a basic level is, what in heaven's name is going on? But on a practical level, the question is, can I reverse engineer this and turn this into more of a conventional therapy? Uh, my goal after that, if I could do that, I think it'd be kind of fun to give it away. Um, uh, and that, that's where it gets kind of dicey where people think, well, you know, that it, it's a good, cancer is a pretty big industry and you don't want to be screwing around with it. So I don't care. I want to screw around with it. Um, it, it, 
can we take the blood of a, of a cured mouse and turn it into um, and and cure other mice with that blood? It turns out, yes, we can. So something biological is going on here, and what I'm trying to do now is to reverse engineer it. Whether it takes wow. the form of a vaccine or whether it takes some other form, I don't yet know. Um, I don't know enough yet. So hey, I'm, I'm approaching a- the problem from a biological set of questions and also a physics set of questions. Can we figure out what happens in healing on a physics level? Can we figure out what happens in healing on a biological level? And even if we don't understand the mechanism, can we turn it into a self-replicating system? Have you been approached by any pharmaceutical companies? And have you looked over your shoulder at all about medicine without a license or... Well, the, the uh, pharmaceutical companies, when I was running around looking for grants, um, uh, I was uh, approached by some pharmaceuticals who were pretty intrigued by my results. When, when I work with experimental animals, I really do work with mice that have 100% death. And okay. so it, it, it's, not, it's not an exaggeration to say no mouse has ever been cured until me. And so something real is happening, and, and if you're investigating stuff, this is going to get your attention. Uh, so, uh, some I've, I've have come. Pharmaceuticals have approached me and said we'd like to fund this, and, and my response is, well, I'm not going to sign anything which gives you control over the product, and that makes them back off um, because I, I I think it would be kind of fun if we were able to reverse engineer a cancer cure. And then presumably the technique would work on other things, too. So, for example, now we're, we're discovering clinically that, um, that we have tremendous effects on, on things like Alzheimer's uh, very quickly and dramatically. And that's pretty interesting. But if we could, if we could get something along the lines of a, a reproducible therapy without all the mystique that, that goes around healing, uh, I think it would be kind of fun to give that away. Well, it would be it, it would be very very exciting. I'd love to see it done. I guess I have the same concerns your friends have. You know, uh, you uh, you develop that black box, and we no longer need to plug into electricity, and you're apt to disappear like so many who allegedly have done just exactly that. Henry Morey comes to my mind. He's from my hometown, but. Uh, you know, I, I, as you say, it is a big industry. Just so our listening audience is up to date on this, I'm going to quote you. You, you state, over the past 35 years, I have been successfully, I have successfully treated many types of cancer, bone, pancreatic, breast, brain, rectal, lymphatic, stomach leukemia, as well as other diseases, all using a hands-on technique that is painless, non-invasive, and has no side effects. Listen, you've done this, and your protocol has actually been tested, uh, experimented, or, or, you know, animal experiments in five different universities. I, I believe ten replications, ten controlled animal experiments. Have I got that right? Ten? Well, it's old uh, because uh, I have many more. <laughs> okay, well, so, let's just stay so, at ten. So it, Why it's on ten. earth... Why on earth isn't everybody talking about this? I mean, you're talking about ten replications at well, five 14, different universities. Yeah. yeah, well, now at fourteen in six places, but it's um, I I I don't know why people aren't people have lots of stuff to talk about. I, I don't know. Um, 
it's an interesting phenomenon, uh, and and I I've been told anyway that my stuff is well, it's different. It's different. Um, on, on the flip side, just to bring in a little humility here, um, there are things that I that my technique won't do that other people make fun of. Uh, so, for example, uh, we've done this with many people. My technique doesn't seem to have any effect on a wart. And I'm told, you're an idiot if you can't do a wart. You can go up to a wart and go, boo, and, and the thing goes away. And the reality is, uh, let's say you know some particular healing technique that gets rid of warts, and I'm told everybody one does except mine, and then you learn my technique, you can't do warts anymore. Now, that's pretty interesting. And I think that's a clue. And that's what I'm trying to unravel. So it's not a contest. It's, it's, it's clues. My thing seems to work very well on malignancies. It doesn't work on warts. That's pretty interesting. Well, wow, I'll uh, say um, so. Other people work on warts, and they don't seem to affect cancers. I don't consider one more than the other. I consider it simply different. And so why is it, what is it about wartedness? And what is it about cancerness? And what is it about the different techniques? And how do we use that to unravel healing? So that if you were trying to develop therapies, obviously, and, and your goal was warts, mine wouldn't be a good candidate, uh, but others would. But can we, it'd be the same question, can I reverse engineer the wart effect using another technique? Now, right now, I, I don't do comparative healing research, and I'm not a healer, and, and so... I mean, I, I, I don't compare different right. schools of healing. I, gotta, I have to stop you. We're going to get kicked up by a heartbreak if I don't. But when we come back, we'll pick up Warts, Cancer, The Difference. If you would like to know more about Professor Bengston and his book, visit his website at bengstonresearch.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest discussing rapid mental imaging as a healing technique. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor William Bengston about his work, research, and book, The Energy Cure, Unraveling the Mystery of Hands-On Healing. All right, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Forever Young, performed by Rob Stewart. So tell us, what's the deal with this one? Oh, it's just another Dylan masterpiece. <laughs> if you... If you uh... I can't. I, I'm not. I'm not good enough in poetry to really, really do it for you. So that particular song is a beautiful song. Dylan does it a different way. Rod Stewart does it a different way. They're both. They're both interesting. Um, I just like Dylan's poetry. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's good enough. That is. I love the lyrics to that one. I yep. will take that. All right. Listen. Before the break, you were discussing the difference between. Um, healers who apparently have, I assume, through some psychic or what have you, gift, the ability to take away warts, but when they learn your technique, they lose their their ability to remove warts. And you, you were explaining what you were doing, how you were investigating that. Uh, so pick it up from there, please. Well, I, again, I, I don't think that First of all, it's not an interesting question anymore to ask something like, does healing happen? You know, is, 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 is healing real? Um, you, if you went back a half century or longer, that, that was a more reasonable question because there wasn't good data. Uh, but the, the pioneering work of, of, I think more than anyone else, Bernard Grad at McGill University uh, kind of nailed the question uh, that, that healing happens. And he did that in many, many, many controlled experiments, all right. published, no viable counter-hypotheses. Right. So the question isn't, does healing happen? The next question, or the, the conclusion shouldn't be, therefore, all healing happens, because there are patterns of healing. So it would be like saying, well, you, you take a particular, you take aspirin. Does, does aspirin do something? Yes. Well, how does it work? I'm not sure. And does it work on everything? No. Well, healing seems to be similar to that. Uh, healing happens, but healing seems to have rules and patterns that haven't been, I think, even remotely adequately uh, looked into. So, for example, a question could be about healing. Does healing create, does a treatment in healing create an effect and another treatment on the same thing create an additional, is it like an additive? So are three treatments better than two treatments? Does mm -hmm. the length of treatment matter? Does it matter whether you should treat for an hour at a time? Is an hour treatment two times a half hour treatment? You know, things like that. What kind of healing produces what kind of effects on what kind of conditions? These are interesting secondary questions that, that I don't think have been uh, looked into by many people because they're still walking around scratching their head does healing happen? You know, right. it's, a, it's a dumb question at, at this point. It, it doesn't make any sense. It, yes, healing happens. But it doesn't mean everything gets healed. So if you come into my lab and you have a wart, I'm going to start flopping on the floor and run out, you know, screaming because that that's past my pay grade. <laughs> uh, if you've got a malignant growth, well, that's okay. That responds. And, and in someone else's place, it would be the reverse. That's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Is uh, it because... Go ahead. It's 
assuming that you didn't give enough treatments? Is it because it's the actual condition? Is it because, I don't know what it's because, but the, these are kind of secondary things or what I think people should be looking into. So you have uh, healing school A compared to healing school B, and how are the, how are the effects different? So do you need certain number of treatments? Do you, do we, should we think of healing as it needs to go on and on and on until the condition is cured? Is healing like a rock at the top of a hill and you give it a nudge by healing and then nature takes its course? Is it, does healing happen the way you want it to? Uh, these kinds of things I think are more interesting questions. Okay, uh, but uh, it, it seems to be the case, again, I don't know comparative healing techniques, but it seems to be the case that certain kinds of healing modalities work on selected things and other kinds work on other things. And, and if you're going to look into cl clinical work, well, that matters a whole lot. If you're a trained healer, I'm not a healer, if you're a trained healer or you're a clinical healer and you want to go out and help people, you need to know what works on what. So I use technique A on condition A and I use technique B on condition B. All healing doesn't, doesn't flow equally. Okay, I guess maybe because of my background, I, I look at this and I wonder if intention hasn't got something to do with it, the psychology of the whole process. Most healers, and we've had several on this show, um, you know, they they participate by pulling like an energy, a divine energy in, or they, they concentrate on, you know, sharing uh, white light uh, and, and so on and so forth. And I and I think our listening audience understands that kind of mechanic, if you will, if we can use that term in this application. Tell us about your technique. How is it different? What is it you teach people to do when they do do your technique? Well, it's it's not a it's certainly not belief based uh, healing. I'm just giving you a quick outcomes. It does, healing doesn't happen the way we'd like it to. I don't think there's anything akin to a psychokinetic effect. Um, we don't have white lights. We don't have this. Uh, frankly, the thing that matters most to me, uh, if, if it were going to be a takeaway message, uh, and, and I, te I teach workshops on how to do this. So I, I, I've taught people uh, to do this. I'm, I'm giving a workshop in uh, Marin County in California in the middle of January, and you can find that kind of stuff on my website. Um, the, the thing that I want to make sure you don't do is that you don't have a ritual. I, I strongly believe at this point that ritual will diminish healing effects. And the second thing I want is to make sure that you maintain a skeptical playfulness and so if you're looking from a, a, the point of view of the practitioner and the psychology of maximizing healing, I think those two things are paramount. Uh, ritual, no. Um, and playfulness, yep. And so I teach people to learn the plot of my technique. It takes a couple of days. And then I encourage them to go past me and to play. And so... I don't even want you to be limited by what I say. So I, I say, for example, in my technique, uh, we can't we can't fix warts. Well, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't say, prove me wrong. Uh, show me. You know, it, it, this is a skeptic society. So show me. 
show me your data. Show me your your clinical case. Show me, show me, show me. Um, uh, play around, and, and the last thing you want is here's a simple formula that makes it work. So with that as a generic introduction, uh, what I teach is a very, very rapid imaging technique. All right, healing, let... in my opinion, ought to be selfish. And, Say that uh, again. All, all healing healings? should be selfish. Okay. Unpack that. What do you mean by that? Um, uh, I think you should be doing only what you want and, and healing if you want. And selfishness to the point of, let's say I want to heal a person or I want to heal a mouse or I want to heal a cell culture or whatever you're healing. Uh, it, it, I want to do it because I want to do it. And selfishness could be experienced by, let's say you have a person who has a condition, so they have a growth, and you don't want them to have the growth. Well, you use my techniques, but you're going into this for you, not for them, for you, so that when the growth goes away, thank them. I think the healer should be thanking the healee if you're really doing what you want. So, and the I mean, healee you... gives you the opportunity to get what you want. Can you motivate yourself? I mean, can you say, okay, look, if I can heal this uh, and it's gone, I'm going to go out and buy myself whatever. I mean, can, and, and does that work? I mean, that's a kind of play. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, uh, what I do is the real guts, and and I, I, I'm prefacing this by saying that if, if you were, I'm not trying to sell this, but if you were to take a, a workshop with me, it would take a couple of days to get the real whole, full plot out. Um, and then you'd have to go and practice it. So there, there are, I'm told, or people have told me that they have, there's, there's healing techniques that fix anything instantly. Well, they're better than me, you know, because that, that doesn't happen in my case. So go to them. The, the, um, uh, in my case, I'm trying to get you to focus only on yourself and to focus only on selfishness, and it begins with a list of very specific things that you want that can be visualized as if they had already happened. And I want at least 20 things so that you don't have, this is, has nothing to do with the power of positive thinking, it has nothing to do with willing something, it has nothing to do with anything like that. 20 things very concrete, set in the future, as the image having to do with something already having been accomplished. If you ask people what they want, they're going to, any group I've ever done this to says the same three things. I want to be happy, I want to be healthy, I want money. Right. None of that works on this. If I want money because what I really want is a car, it's the car I want. The things on the list are envisioned as already having been accomplished without regard to when or how. So I want the red sports car. I'm making stuff up. I right, actually right. couldn't care less about a red sports car. But somebody wants a red sports car. And so the images of you driving the red sports car. Now, how'd you get it? Well, somebody gave it to you. That's one way. You made money and you bought one. That's another way. You won lotto. Uh, you, 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 and you get the idea. There's all sorts of ways to get to the same end. It's the end that we're envisioning. So they're very concrete. It's nothing like, I want to be happy. The issue is, well, give me an image that implies you got what you got. So let's say you have a, a physical problem. I, I, I have bad knees. 
I, I don't, but uh, someone has bad knees and they want to go skiing. So the images of you skiing, if you're skiing, your knees are better. Okay. You don't focus on the knees. You focus on being in the place that you want to be, which implies it's over. Okay, now this is the healer that's doing this. The healer is seeing 20 concrete things, visualizing. What have you got the, the client, patient, what have you got them doing? In the case of people, uh, it seems to matter whether or not the, the client does this too. And trying to get clients to be selfish is a pretty interesting phenomenon. But um, the, it seems to matter. But remember, my experiments are on mice. And I also have a gazillion experiments on cell cultures, and I have, and I have, you know, things that that we're going to assume there's no list. So, right. so the the Healy, uh, the Healy, I think you want to be as neutral as possible. Uh, if you got cell cultures, they neither believe nor don't believe. I don't think belief is a good thing. Uh, if you got mice, they neither believe nor don't believe. They simply have a condition. The mice you use, I don't mean to interrupt, but the mice you use, Professor, uh, are, are these mice tame, uh, domesticated mice, or are you using wild uh, mice? No, no, these are straight from a lab. So that there are there are um, uh, companies that supply you with animals. Right, right, right. And but so, the, for example, there... most of our stuff has come out of Jackson Labs. Yeah, and, 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 and they're not really wild. They're kind no, of... No, uh, no, these are inbred... No. You know, yeah. unnatural everything. <laughs> yeah. And they're right. the ones used in uh, conventional, traditional research. Right. So, right. so I mean, the mice come by UPS. <laughs> the, the cancer comes by UPS. You know, the guy comes to the door says, cancer's here, you know, and you sign for it. And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's a weird world to be in. Uh, but these are conventional things. So th- your question of does, does the imaging matter uh, anecdotally, it seems to matter in clinical cases, particularly for certain kinds of conditions. But th- my experiments are done not on humans. They're done on, on, on things that don't make lists. But in any event, the, the list of 20 things it, it has to be as concrete as possible, and it's as far set in the future, which implies you already got what you want as possible. So, for example, an image to I'll give you, I'll give you a quick lesson here on how to cure cancer. Okay. Everybody involved in the experiment has an image of toasting in my living room. Okay. That's it. That's it. Yeah, you have nothing You're to do with just cancer. toasting you in your living room. How it happens, it's over. Okay. So we're, we're in a future where we're toasting the success of the experiment. And this, this is how you treat the mice? Yeah. Okay. And that's so, how you. So you got to listen. That's how you things. train other experimenters, uh, collaborators, to conduct their experiments in laboratories in other universities with the mice. The same way. If they're going to be treating mice, yeah, they they need to do this, and it does seem to matter. Okay, let, so let me they, ask they, you this: the people who are going to be acting as healers, they're not healers. I'm not a healer. They're not healers. We we just know how to heal. Um, the, the, you're going to make this list 20 things, 20 things we're shooting for is a minimum. The record's 94. Uh, that's a really selfish guy. But, uh, we've got 20 things that you want and they're, they're essentially burned into your brain so you can recall them without struggle. 
and you go through these images very, very, very quickly, and I mean very quickly, while you're having an emotion. So you are presented with a cage of mice who are going to die of cancer, and the only thing between them and death is you. I would hope you're going to feel anxious. When you're feeling anxious, you're ripping through this cycling list, this image cycling list, very, very fast. You're fully present, but you're going through this, this list very, very quickly. Now, when you start this process, and, and I have a, you know, a CD training course on this, but when you start this process, you're doing it mindfully. You're paying attention, and so you're struggling. And what you're doing when you're mastering healing, using mastery just loosely, when you're mastering healing is that you're transitioning from mindful healing to mindless. Mindless healing is always preferable to mindful. Anything that we master is, is mastered by transitioning to mindless. So if I'm learning a sport, I'm learning how to play tennis. I'm drilled mindfully. Here's a backhand, hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball. And eventually, muscle memory is built up, and then I can do it. it would, I experience that as naturally, instinctively. I become an observer to myself. I don't think about the mechanics. I'm in a flow. Right. So the transition from mindful to mindless is what we're after here. And I'm, I'm giving you the mindful part. So if you're walking, when you started out as a little kid, you mindfully walked and you look like a klutz. And then given sufficient steps, you click, you have a phase transition, and suddenly you're a mindless walker. You can't imagine not being able to walk. If you go back and you practice mindful walking, it's fun for the conscious mind, but it has nothing to do with mastery of walking. You look... You look Un uncoordinated when you mindfully walk because mindless walking is always more efficient than mindful walking right. the same is true with healing mindless healing is always preferable to mindful healing you don't want to be present you want to be listening to Bob Dylan and you want to be focused on Bob Dylan with a passing intention to begin a healing process and then when experiencing an emotion going through this list of 20-plus things very, very, very rapidly. But the 20-plus things are not a distraction technique. They're something to be done simultaneous in the, in the way that you can, when you first learned how to walk when you were a little kid, you did it awkwardly until you became mindless. Once you became mindless walker, you could start to gesture and walk. You could gesture, walk, and talk. As we as we transition one after another, multitasking, mindless skills, healing is nothing more exotic than walking. It's not more spiritual than walking. Walking is a miracle. Healing is yeah, it's healing. Healing happens. Don't worry about it. Don't make it a big deal, and do it only because you want to. Walk to a particular place because you want to. Here's how you mindlessly walk. Heal what you want to. Here's how you mindlessly heal same plot you you uh, did allude to the fact that I want you know to come back to that for a moment that uh, I noticed at Amazon you have a number of courses audio materials etc that teach this technique 
so that anyone in our audience could, uh, you know, experiment with it themselves. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I, I When I put out the Energy Cure, um, and I don't like the title, incidentally, but when I put out the Energy Cure, I was asked to dictate the techniques. I don't have any proprietary secrets. And so I, I went to Sounds True, and we just dictated, uh, here's how you do it. And this is also pretty interesting to me because I, I, I'm curious about whether you can learn and master, using that loosely, healing just by listening to CDs. I'm getting interesting, suggestive anecdotes from around the world of people who have done it, uh, but the jury's still out. The, the skeptic in me needs a control study to see if learning it live or learning it on a CD or different conditions of learning matter. I don't know the answer to that. I, I have to ask this. I've got lots of questions, and we've got a break coming, but we, we've got about a minute more. What on earth do you see as the mechanic behind this? I mean, we, we, we throw a word out there and we say energy. Okay, cool. Uh, what kind of energy are we talking about? Well, this is where I don't like the, the title of my book. Uh, and I told, sounds true, when they said we want to call it the energy cure, I said I don't think there's an energy involved. And they said, thank you for your input, you know, but we own the book. <laughs> so, so I don't, I, I mean, I think it's a misleading title. I don't think there is an energy. If it were an energy, it would diminish with distance. And I've done experiments at 2,000 miles, which exactly replicate results at two inches. Wow. Now, I don't know what kind of, that, that doesn't conform to what we consider to be energy. Uh, so I don't think energy, you talk about energy healing, I don't think it's an energy. I think it's an information packet. And so I think what we're getting is we're giving to the healy, no matter what the healy is, animal, vegetable, human, I think you're giving to the healy what the healy is asking for. And I think it's information, and I think the energy comes from the system itself. So if it's an information packet, is that evidence in your mind of mind at a distance, mind, uh, you know, uh, operating at a distance? Oh, I, I, I don't have any. As a good good skeptic, I don't have any question at this point that mind is not local. I okay. mean, it's not local. All right, cool. Let's, uh, we have a hard break, so let's jump off to that. When we come back, uh, we'll discuss more of this uh, with Doctor with Professor Bengston, and uh, we'll take your phone calls. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook. Enter, drop me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your talk today. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. 
Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor William Bengston about his book, The Energy Cure. In this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor, we just played your third musical choice. Tell me why. Who's been lying to you, Professor? Why this song? You know, I, I, I don't know who picked that music, but uh, you got to like the Beatles, you know. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I picked that music, but um, I don't know anybody's lied to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so, sure have it here is coming in from you, but that's all right. Nice. Yeah, nice. yeah. We'll, so, we'll, we'll, so, just, we'll just assume it. Nobody's assume lied that, to you. I'll assume that uh, – here, I'll, I'll, I'll twist that around for you. I'll, I'll assume that anything that's known to be true – is a lie. <laughs> okay. So I we'll listen. take it as a generic. Yeah, I, I, I don't accept uh, that anybody's got, has nailed truth. I certainly haven't. Yeah, well, I, I, I'll i go with that, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, you get a little bit further into that, that all the research shows us that uh, you can put two people together and they're going to tell each other a lie in that first five minutes. Yeah, it could might... be. Could be. Yeah. Yep. And, and maybe even unwittingly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Listen, there's a famous study that was carried out by Dr. Kurt P. Richner. And the reason I asked you about domestic or, you know, wild mice was, uh, you know, Richner drowned rats. What he learned was that if he removed the rat from the bucket of water and held it for a moment, dried it off, and then returned it to the water, that the rat could swim up to 60 hours. The domestic rat could swim up to 60 hours before it would drown. However, without this intercession, the rats drowned on average within 15 minutes. Now, the study is often referred to, and I'm sure you know about this, as the HOPE study. 
However, this intercession may have something to do with a placebo effect uh, as well. You know, and, and I guess my question here is, do you think that the mice in your study, these are domestic mice, whatever that might be, I'll put it in quotation marks, uh, could possibly be responding to the attention or the presence, uh, the care, as opposed to energy per se? Because isn't it true you're, some of your your control groups have actually healed as well? Yeah, uh, I, have, I, I, I have a very different idea about what a placebo means uh, than the conventional parlance. Uh, the, the placebo effect is traditionally, as you're alluding to it, uh, is a psychological phenomenon, and so mammals like attention and all that kind of thing. Um, but the, the, I consider placebos to actually be a physical connection uh and and uh, resonant bonding uh so i i suspect that for example let's say humans uh and let's say we're doing a drug trial and and this goes to your statement about non-locality if we have a a bonded group and we give half of them some stimulus we know that the placebo effect will occur in the other group right it, one of the dirty little secrets about placebos is that placebo effects are directly proportional to the strength of the drug. So if I give right. X dosage, I get X placebo. If I give 2X, I get 2X placebo. Right. And I suspect that what we're, what we're, we have a faith-based assumption in experimental science, and I think just generically, that physical separateness means independence. And I'm not a member of that religion. I used to be, but I'm no longer a member of that religion. So if I have a bunch of mice and I'm treating some and I've got control mice someplace else, it turns out that I can start to unravel and I am unraveling the patterns by which we resonantly bond all the mice together. And if they're resonantly bonded, uh, I think a treatment to one group is actually a treatment to all of them. Okay, I, I have to... You know, I don't want to. Uh, I guess what I want to do is parse this a little bit. Let's let's say it that way. Go ahead. We have an expectation factor that that's known that's built into the placebo. I mean, we if we give you a plain white uh, pill, we get the typical kind of number twenty twenty five percent. Assume that's given with the right authority and and so forth. But if we put an initial on that that tablet, it becomes stronger. If we use a capsule, colorize the capsule even, we still get stronger. If it's an injection, it's still stronger. And that seems to all be linked to our expectation or our belief. How does that fit with the idea of resonant bonding? Well, you can carry the placebo farther. You can actually give the tablets that say placebo on it. But right, I know that. I'm very aware of that. I, I, I'm very aware that you can hand anything. You can give a patient a, a medication and tell them it is a placebo. You can give them a treatment that involves some kind of physical exercise and tell them it's a, a placebo, and it will still have benefits. I'm very yeah. aware of that. Yeah, yeah, but, yep. So how but, much of placebo is expectation and how much of it is an actual physical resonant bonding that's what I I'm asking know. you. I, I suspect, my, and, and this is pure speculation, I suspect uh -huh. that most placebo effects uh, 
are more resonant bonding than psychological. I've actually designed a sequence of studies that will involve human patients, specifically medical students, who don't yet know that I'm volunteering them, uh, as a bonded group. And I, and I, I think I've, I've designed a sequence which will parse out the proportion of placebo, which is psychological, and the proportion that's physical. I just haven't done it yet. Uh, I, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to pull off. Uh, it's on the drawing boards. I know the place. I know, I know a lot of things, a couple of loose ends to work out. So I could probably answer your question hopefully in a year, but right now I'm simply speculating, hypothesizing, if you will, that the bulk of placebos are not just psychological, they're actually physical. And this incidentally has some pretty interesting implications for clinical practice. I suspect, and this is still speculation, uh-huh. I suspect that if you wanted to maximize treatment, and treatment efficacy, whether you're dealing with animals, vegetables, or humans, that you want to have a group of people aware of each other. This, of course, goes against HIPAA laws, but aware of each other. And I suspect then if you can make them a bonded group, a treatment to any one will be a treatment to all. And let me give you the analog in my mice experiment. Please. We've tried dose treating them once a week, three times a week, five times a week. We've tried treating for 15 minutes at a time, 30 minutes at a time, an hour at a time. You get the idea. So all these permutations. It turns out the only thing that matters in predicting the speed of cure, this is a cure of cancer, is the number of mice in an experiment. The more mice, the faster they all get cured. So if I'm treating 75 mice, They'll get better as a group faster than if you treat 25. Now, that doesn't make any sense unless you think of them as one bonded group. And the number of treatments necessary to treat 75 mice far exceeds the number of treatments necessary to treat 25 mice. And if a treatment to one is a treatment to all, what we're doing is we're bombarding them with treatment. So, so I'm theoretic- in cage one and you're in cage two. When I'm treating cage one, I'm also giving a treatment to cage two. And the question to me is, what are the laws or what are the rules of bonding and unbonding? Because clearly you can bond and unbond. And everybody here has experienced that. So so you know that you don't have to ask the question. You felt close to someone, then you felt not close to the same person. You, You love your dog, you hate your dog. Well, it's not your dog. It's the bond. The bond is fluid. When the bond is tighter... I think that if you poke one, the other will jump. That's really, really interesting. So theoretically, you could bring a group of cancer patients together, whatever the number, but the higher the number, the better. And I want them to and, know each other. And, and, and that's right. And get them you know, to share and to, to talk like it was some kind of group therapy session yep. so that they're really identifying with one another. Yep. A, a, a kind of gestalting event, even, yep. where they, they share deep emotions. Yep. And and while they're doing that, you could be treating them with your 20 exercises in your mind and your Dylan headphones on. Treating any one of them. Well, every one of them. Because you're treating one, you'd be treating them all. Yes. And so if I'm going around and we go to the question of dose, 
Dose uh, is still, if I'm treating one cage of mice uh, once a week and another cage of mice three times a week, and I belong to the uh, to the faith-based assumption that separateness means independence, the data don't make any sense. If you start to think in terms of separateness is an illusion, and, you know, this this local mind, local phenomena is all there is, well, then the data don't make sense. But if you allow uh, bonding at a distance, all this stuff starts to click into place. And so I suspect that placebos, it turns out, here's another dirty little secret, if you do a phase three trial in drugs, you can have a larger group than if you have a phase two trial. Phase three trials have stronger placebo effects. Now, that makes no sense unless you allow for resonant bonding. The implications to this, you know, they're more than just in the healing area. They're in the philosophical and the spiritual. You're basically saying that for all intent and purposes, it's an illusion to think of ourselves as being separate. We are all one. And that at some information level, we not only know that, but we share it. Yes. I have a paper that, that I I forget what it's titled, I never read what I write, but it's it's resonance placebo effects in type 2 errors and implications for experimental design. You talk about implications, forget healing. This is in anything. So I suspect that in the normal experimental protocol, fill in the blank, whatever you're doing, Mm -hmm. and I treat one group and I don't treat another group, whether it's a psychological experiment, a physical experiment, a drug experiment, and then if there's no difference between the groups at the end, the conventional wisdom says, therefore, nothing happened. And if nothing happened... You're doing that by comparison of groups at the end. But what if all groups are, are, are bonded? If they're all bonded and nothing, there's no difference, then that doesn't mean nothing happened. That means you're interpreting the data wrong. That's the type 2 error in, in geek land. Right, uh, right. It's, it, it, you're making a mistake of interpretation. So I have an experiment, for example, where I had six rooms of mice. I didn't even know there were six. I, I thought there were three, and everybody's playing tricks on me. <laughs> and I have six different rooms of mice, and there are six different conditions. In one, somebody's treating them in a certain way. In another, there's a sham healer. In another, and another, and another. Six different rooms, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. This is a bonded group of mice all shipped together. Well, it turns out all rooms, all the mice were cured. The conventional statistical wisdom there would be, therefore, nothing happened. There was yeah. no difference among the six rooms. But in all six rooms, all the mice were cured. You see the misinterpretation. Now, is yeah, that if it were something besides, no. if it were something besides a terminal cancer, that's exactly what you would conclude. But you're, you're exactly. left with, yeah. But I know what should have happened. And one of the benefits of my studies is I know what otherwise would have happened. Mice die. Right. How often? Hundred percent. Right. When I do hocus pocus, they all get cured plus the ones that I'm not treating. <laughs> I love your sense of humor when I do Hocus Pocus. Okay. Well, it's Hocus hey. Pocus. Give me a break. The stuff is crazy. <laughs> All right.
<laughs> Let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on author Hastings to what he termed the resistance to belief? How does that fit in this? Well, I, I consider this is a very strong personal bias. I consider belief to be uh, the stronger the belief, the more dangerous the belief. I don't care what the belief is. The stronger and, the belief, the more dangerous. And I start with dangerous. the assumption that I don't know a whole lot. I'm skeptical of other people who, who think they know a whole lot. I'm skeptical of textbooks. When I teach a methods class, I try to get people to undo years of, years of what I call intellectual bulimia. And so belief, I think, it can be a, uh, a dangerous thing. And I think hanging on to a belief and defending belief uh, is, is really, it, it, it can be a very dangerous thing. The resistance to change, hold on one second, please. The resistance to change, I, I think, is the, is the act of defending beliefs. And defending beliefs is not the way to go. All right, sir. You know, I, I hesitate to go here, but you know, I, I have to play devil's advocate and do so in a fair way. There are many who insist your work is that of a quack, oh, such yeah. as the such as the type of charges leveled by Cassilis and Garrett of Memorial Sloan. Uh, Kettering Cancer Center in an article called Cancer Quackery, the Persistent Popularity of Useless Irrational Alternative Treatments. Yep. I I uh, I have a, I, I honestly and for our listening audience, I honestly have a problem with uh, calling your work quackery when it has been documented and researched the way it is, but they don't and they carry their own credibility. So I'm yeah. going to ask you fairly. Uh, how do you respond to charges of this kind, and how does it make you feel personally since you seem to be so dedicated to just helping other people? Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm dedicated to helping other people. I would say I have a rabid curiosity about the stuff. All right. And, well, let's uh, let's say you're dedicated to helping yourself. You're just a I'm selfish okay. dude, yes, okay? Because every time you heal someone, you're selfish. It's Nevertheless, you're going to have nicely feelings. <laughs> uh, I've spoken in departments of oncology at medical schools. Mm -hmm. And so I usually draw a reasonably big crowd. You get like 75 very skeptical oncologists who are throwing daggers at me and tomatoes and eggs and anything else they can... It's not bolted to the floor, right? And and so this, and then they'll go after me and try to cut my knees out for a couple of hours. And at the end, without without fail, I've got ended up with a standing ovation because they can't find a flaw in what I've done. So if I'm wrong, I'm perfectly fine being wrong. Remember, I'm a skeptic. So if you can show where I'm wrong, rather than just believe that I'm wrong because I'm challenging your textbooks, then I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm a skeptic. My stuff's nuts. I'm following the data. They're following their religion. And hence, I'm not trying to defend my belief. My belief is that all my beliefs are wrong. 
and I'm perfectly fine whenever I do an experiment, I'm always flabbergasted. My, my jaw drops, I, my, my mouth opens, and I go, what's going on here? And so nature is much more interesting than my feeble imagination. And so I get the glimpse at all sorts of interesting stuff that no one else has seen before. That's pretty, that's pretty fun. But to show me that something is wrong, I'm fine with. But show me. Am I methodologically off? Did I do some procedure wrong? That kind of stuff I'm perfectly fine with. And I don't mean this as an arrogant statement. I haven't found someone able to do it yet. Yeah, no kidding. All right. So basically, reading your book, I come to understand that anyone can be a healer. That indeed all of us are because we all carry the information. So we just need to be uh, present in the sense that we know we carry the information and then um, not so mindful about transferring that information. And that's part of the technique you do. And so let me ask you this. You know, we had Michael Shermer on the show not long ago. Um, he's going to laugh like crazy at this whole technique process and have a handful of his own criticism. Could he be a healer? Well, the only people I've ever used in my experiments are inexperienced skeptics. I, I'm not comfortable around believers. So, I, frankly, I, and this sounds facetious, but I have no evidence that a believer can heal. But skeptics can certainly heal. I don't okay. want, if I go up to someone and say, you want to take part in a crazy experiment, and they say, what is it? And I explain it, and they go, oh, yeah, I believe that. I, I run away. <laughs> I would never believe me. I have no expectation of anybody else believing me, and I get a little nervous when someone believes me. I want someone to come in there and say, yeah, you're, you're nuts, but I'll do what you t tell me to do. That works beautifully. That works beautifully. So I, I would, if you had a good skeptic, as opposed to a believer, I think that's a wonderful thing. And and a skept, a believer comes in various stripes. I, I've been invited, for example, to give talks uh, at, at skeptic societies. And so these are people who pride themselves, they allege, on skeptical thinking. And I go in and I usually start by insulting them and say, I'm the only skeptic in the room. And they get all harumphy. And, and, and I say, you already believe that the stuff I haven't yet told you is wrong. That's right. not skepticism. That's belief. That's cynicism. That's right. That's mindless belief. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what, I don't think mindless belief is a good thing in any area. And I doubt that mindless belief in healing is, a good thing, and I don't think mindless disbelief is a good thing. I think an open-minded skeptic is is my preferred place to land. Yeah, they're few and far between, though. Actually, you know, we all carry our baggage, uh, and that baggage contains implicit and explicit beliefs, and uh, we're not. I mean, we're often not aware of some of the uh, implicit. Uh, beliefs, biases, etc., that we hold. So oh, yeah, finding yeah. that true skeptic could be a, a, a more of a challenge than finding a non-believer. It, 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 I, I have to search for a skeptic. They're hard to find because people just 
land. You know, they, they, they just they, they know what they know, and, and they practice what I call conclusionary reasoning. They begin with a conclusion, and they look around for evidence or experience to back it up. Uh, and that, that is, uh, that's very common. It's a very difficult practice to, to get around. Um, and people are more comfortable with the illusion that they know what's going on in the world. Right. All right. Well, we're out of time, Professor, and I want everybody to know that your books and materials are available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble online, as well as brick-and-mortar stores. And, and I strongly encourage you to follow up and study this uh, material. Uh, Professor Bankston's uh, work is uh, truly unique. His website, again, is Bankston Research. Com. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us. And do remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.